welcome back to Work, Love, Pray, Real Talk, Grounded in Truth. I'm Jordan Johnstone, and I'm going to be upfront with you. This will likely be a pretty long episode, so please get a snack. When we were planning what we wanted to talk about with Forward's content this year, we quickly realized that the topics of mental health and mental illness were pretty high up on the list for much of our audience. For years, we've had this desire to talk about this topic, explore it some, give it the attention it deserves, but... You know, we just didn't really feel like we had anyone on the team that was qualified to talk about it. Well, then I was introduced to Deb Gordon and I knew that we were finally ready to sit down and start opening up about this incredibly important topic and in discussion. We are grateful that we are able to add Forward's voice to this conversation, especially this month, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. So what got me so excited about Deb? Well, she is a licensed clinical psychologist from Chicago who has worked for more than 14 years in her field. She is currently the director of Moody Theological Seminary's Master's in Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program, as well as Moody's Counseling Center. She's a forward woman through and through, and she is passionate about pulling away the stigma around mental health and mental illness and helping all of us truly understand and embrace the way that God made each of us. Deb, I said it when we met, and I'll say it again. I am so excited to be able to start having this much-needed conversation thanks to you. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I, and yes, I love talking about, I mean, I don't like that people struggle with mental health and mental illness, but I love talking about it for the very reason that you said, breaking the stigma. It's so important. The more we talk about it, the more we normalize the experience and we validate the experience of those people that are struggling with mental illness. Well, before we dive into everything, I would love to have you share what led you to become a psychologist because that's not that's not an easy <laughs> no. job. And I have to say, I don't have the most glamorous route to psychology, but I do love sharing what brought me into the field. So um, I actually studied journalism in undergrad and, and did have a very glamorous job. I went to work uh, for NBC Studios out in California. Um, and just didn't feel like that was a great fit, but found during my time there and probably even just reflecting back on some of my later, you know, kind of uh, late adolescence, early young adulthood experiences, I loved problem solving and doing so in a very relational way. So, um, and, and my faith was incredibly important to me. So as I kind of wrestled through like, what, what do I really want to do with, with my life? This concept of coming alongside people and walking with them and alongside them as they're struggling and they're facing different challenges was really um, just, it just was really evident that that was a passion of mine. And so I sought out a program. I went to Fuller Seminary out in California that had both um, the clinical psychology training as well as the, the biblical and theological training. So I could really look at the whole person, you know, not just their mental health, their physical health and well-being, but also their spiritual health as well. Well, and that's amazing. And I think it is, I mean, it really is a relationship um, kind of dynamic with the yeah. whole conversation all around. So I agree. I think that's, that's a huge part of it. So as I mentioned before, Forward has wanted so badly <laughs> to join in on this important conversation about mental health, but we just haven't felt ready. Um, and I think a big part of our hesitation stems from that stigma that we were talking about that's just been built up around mental health, especially, unfortunately, in Christian circles. Yeah. So where do you think that this stigma came from and then why is it still going so strong? Oh, yeah. You know, I think for so long, 
mental illness and, and mental health in general just really wasn't understood. Um, and when we think about what is mental illness, it's really anything that keeps us emotionally from engaging life on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, if we look at, let's talk about depression, the symptoms of depression uh, can include a lack of motivation, social isolation, difficulty sleeping, low energy, all of which, you know, if you think about your day-to-day -day life, those are necessary things to help you be successful in navigating the tasks that you face. And so, you know, unlike physical illness, which we can kind of have, um, we can see the, the physical manifestation of, I think part of the stigma was mental illness doesn't really have necessarily that, that physical manifestation, although we know that it does now, but when somebody was saying, you know, I feel depressed or I feel sad or lonely, we tend, especially in the Christian community, to think those types of symptoms don't have a physical component. Therefore, you know, if you turn to scripture, if you turn to prayer, or if you turn to your church community and worship and engage in those things more, then these symptoms will alleviate. But as we've seen with growing advances in science and technology and um, things like MRIs that allow us to see what's actually happening in the brain when somebody's feeling depression or anxiety or other mental health symptoms, there's physiological changes that are actually happening in our bodies when we encounter those things. So um, I think, you know, we're recognizing now this, this kind of trite statement of, well, you can pray it away. Yes, I believe in a God of miracles and God can miraculously heal us even of physical ailments, but so often he's also given us gifted practitioners and mental health providers and doctors that help address these symptoms that have a very physical root to them. And when we talked earlier, um, you know, when we were planning out this podcast episode, we were talking about, you know, how do you balance the clinical side of this conversation as well as the spiritual side? And is there maybe one viewpoint that's better than the yeah. other? Um, well, I always say, you know, God's truth is the truth. And so everything that, whether I'm teaching my students or working with a client or even in my own personal life, everything is filtered through the truth of the gospel. Um, so that's always where I start. But a lot of my clients don't aren't actually uh, Christ followers or believers. And so I'm looking at them uh, through a biblical lens in terms of their personhood. God created them, whether they know that or not, I do. And so he created them with the, the intention of, of um, all of his creation being whole, but we know that we're broken because of the fall. So certainly when it comes to understanding mental health, I can't ignore uh, what what the scriptures say about who we are as as individuals that God created. Um, but then when it comes to the clinical side of things, you know, that really helps me understand the root of mental illness. I mean, much like somebody with, um, you know, let's say a, a diagnosis of a, a, a chronic illness, um, you know, medical science can help them understand perhaps where the root of their symptoms are coming from. Maybe it's diet, maybe it's genetic components, maybe there's something um, internally that's been rewired and that's causing them to feel the pain that they're experiencing. The same with the clinical side. If I if I understand, you know, when I interact with a client, they share with me what's going on. I can begin to access that knowledge in my training to say, okay, you know, these symptoms might be rooted in this experience, um, this environmental influence, or even, you know, the tracing back your family history. There may be a genetic predisposition towards uh, what some of the feelings that you're experiencing and some of the symptoms you're encountering. Okay. So diving in <laughs> to the topic, um, in general terms, 
how would you define mental illness? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm very conversational. I love relationships. So I could give you like you know, the, the dictionary definition. But again, to me, when you think about, all right, so in my day-to-day life, what are the things that I, you know, typically encounter? Well, I, um, you know, I, I work with with colleagues. So I have to engage and have conversation with my colleagues. I have to get up and I have to go to work in the morning. Maybe you have family and you have to get your kids ready for school or interact with teachers at a parent teacher conference or a spouse. Um, you know, maybe you have other, uh, family expectations or commitments or other things in your life. When we think about mental illness, mental illness interferes with what we call tasks of daily living. All of those things that we do on a regular basis that for those of us who aren't experiencing significant mental illness, probably take for granted. Um, and so if you're experiencing, you know, like I said, when we talk about symptoms of depression, my clients that are really struggling with depression, sometimes they have a hard time even just getting out of bed in the morning to get to work because the low motivation, you know, the lack of desire, willingness to engage in the day to day, um, maybe they're going through a grief experience. And so that's compounding, whatever symptoms they're having, they're, they're, you know, frequently crying. Maybe they're having difficulty sleeping at night. Um, maybe they're experiencing a lack of appetite or over appetite. And so all of those things, you know, if we think about ourselves, again, going back to that biblical lens, God created us whole. I mean, so often in the Bible, we're referred to as physical, mental, spiritual, emotional beings. And so all of those elements intertwine to be who we are. And if one of those parts of ourselves isn't functioning well, the rest of the system kind of goes off kilter. So going back to the question, when I think of what mental illness is, it's it's symptoms that you're experiencing that aren't attributed to a physical illness um, that are impacting your ability to engage in day-to-day living activities. Are there some mental illnesses that are more prevalent than others? And I'm thinking, especially maybe in terms of women. Yeah. Well, the number one mental illness um, in the U.S., and actually there's a lot of research that's suggesting even globally, is anxiety. Um, And what's interesting enough is that when they break down the experiences of mental illness, so anxiety and depression, probably the two most common ones that people are most familiar with and the two most common ones that individuals experience, um, there's not a huge discrepancy in the experience of men and women uh, when it comes to depression, anxiety, although uh, researchers tend to think that women are more likely to report those symptoms than men are. And so they oftentimes then that results in a higher percentage of people encountering uh, or women encountering depression or anxiety, although that, like I said, there's not really that much of a difference. But um, one in five in, in the U.S. encounters um, an experience of mental illness every year, and that's anxiety or depression. Do men, because you said something interesting there, do men maybe try to fight slash hide when symptoms of mental illness show up maybe more than women? Does it maybe even come down to like an ego thing a little bit? It could. Um, It certainly could. Yeah. I think there's obviously that kind of stereotype that men have to present, uh, 
you know, a very brave and stoic face. And so they feel like if they're showing emotion, it's a sign of weakness. Although I've got many women who feel the same way, um, especially the executive women I work with who feel like, you know, I've got to be very um, non-emotional in the workplace, which I hate when I hear that because I think God has gifted us with emotion and they're very powerful and they serve a purpose in our lives. I think men also manifest the symptoms differently. So um, let's say that, you know, you have a woman that's experiencing depression and maybe one of the symptoms is that withdrawal. And so, you know, lack of engagement in, you know, regular social activities where um, perhaps the man is uh, experiencing more aggressive tendencies or anger that maybe their symptoms are manifesting in, in outbursts or increases in yelling or aggressiveness, um, not necessarily physically aggressive, but, you know, raising their voice or tending to maybe lose their temper more. Um, and that's not always the case. That's just maybe one way in which the symptoms could uh, present a little bit differently. So maybe we have somebody listening now um, who feels like they're dealing with mental illness. Maybe they have some of those symptoms that you've mentioned before, but they're not, they're not at a point where they want to go see someone. Um, yeah. So in addition to those, maybe what are, what are some symptoms that are associated with different mental illnesses? Um, and maybe, maybe break it down a little bit by like, these are some common depression and anxiety and, you know, maybe bipolar, you know, any of the other ones. Um, yeah. And are there ways to keep symptoms under control that don't involve medication. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I do think in some cases medication is warranted. Um, but I also think community and support can be incredibly helpful. Um, so, so let's talk about the symptoms. Um, I kind of mentioned some of the symptoms of depression already. Oftentimes the most common ones you'll see that are kind of the, the initial triggers are that lack of motivation, low energy or fatigue, perhaps um, kind of an unexplained or sudden weight loss or weight gain, difficulty sleeping, uh, frequent crying spells, uh, a general sense of, you know, kind of feeling down and sad. Um, and then anxiety. So Oftentimes, anxiety is accompanied by symptoms like racing thoughts, uh, increased heart rate. Um, you might have physical symptoms like sweaty palms or you're uh, feeling flushed or hot. Um, oftentimes, individuals who are encountering pretty severe anxiety have a difficult time focusing or concentrating because uh, they've got these racing kind of ruminating thoughts happening. And then you mentioned bipolar disorder. So bipolar is um, is a cyclical disorder. So what you'll see in an individual struggling with these symptoms is they go through bouts of depression. And, um, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about severe bipolar disorder, they might really have a difficult time getting out of bed. They're sleeping much longer than eight to 10 hours a day, staying in bed for even up to 24 hours at a time or more. And then that cycles into a period of what's called mania. So if we've got, again, kind of that extreme bipolar disorder, the manic phases are really self-destructive behaviors. So you have individuals engaging in significant substance use, perhaps. Um, I've had clients who deal with like compulsive gambling or shopping or other addictive behaviors when they're in that manic phase. You might have somebody who goes out and just spends thousands of dollars that they don't have. Um, and again, all of this trigger, triggered by uh, chemical imbalances in their brain. So it's not that they're just, you know, kind of flippantly disregarding uh, the, the self-set of rules they have in their life. They really struggle with being able to exercise self-control. And you mentioned, too, um, when I brought up medication, you said that 
sometimes it's warranted, sometimes it's not. So at what point do you kind of cross that line into medication would actually benefit you? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I really want to emphasize, cause I think this is a, this is a stigma also. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I, people think if I take medication, I'm not doing the work necessary. There's something that I'm doing wrong. That's absolutely not the case. I mean, as we've seen, there are there are literal changes that are happening in our brain when we're navigating mental illness. So much like, you know, I think the common comparison is much like a diabetic might need insulin shots to control, um, you know, to control their blood sugars. There are many individuals that are struggling with mental illness that cannot regulate no matter how much they change their thoughts and their behavior or they process through past hurts. So I kind of like to use the analogy of, you know, good old fashioned lawnmower. I don't know if you had to to mow the lawn as a kid. I did as a chore. And um, every once in a while when I was visiting my grandmother and, uh, you know, you have that, that pulley that, that kicks the motor Mm -hmm. into gear. Mm -hmm. And so I think about it this way. If I'm working with a client and we are putting, you know, a lot of effort and energy, well, really they are, um, into trying to address these symptoms and we're not seeing change, it's kind of like pulling that, that, that motor and it's, you know, it, it starts to rev and then it just dies out and it starts to rev and then it just dies out. And that's when I would say, all right, you know what? Maybe it's time to go see your, your primary care doctor or, you know, my preference is always referring to a psychiatrist because they have that mental health background to see if medication can get that engine going to get you to the point where now all this stuff that we are working on in counseling can really start to take root and will reinforce kind of that positive experience that you feel like we're making progress towards the goal instead of constantly feeling like I'm trying and then kind of deflated because it's not working. Well, and I love that you brought up psychiatrists. So what, what is the difference between the two? And then yeah. at what point should you go see either a psychologist like you or a psychiatrist? And is it something that you have to go see both? Because obviously, I mean, with the healthcare world, that the way right. it is, um, you know, most of the time, this is not a cheap endeavor that you're about to go on. So is it absolutely necessary to see both or is it maybe, you know, a fluctuating type plan? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that one all the time. So basic difference, psychiatrists go to medical school, psychologists go to clinical psychology school. Honestly, it's about the same amount of time. So my clinical psychology works six years um, after my college degree, oh, wow. <laughs> medical school four, you know, and then you go into your fellowships and your residencies and whatnot. So psychiatrists really know because they prescribe, they know the physical body. They know how, you know, medication um, interacts with the chemicals in our in our bloodstream and our brain, and so that is really their area of expertise. I know a fair amount of psychiatrists who also do additional training in behavioral therapy and um, you know different different types of of talk therapy. And so, if you are able to find a psychiatrist who also has that additional training. Um, it's rare in my experience, at least, but there are some out there, then that might be sufficient. Typically what I see is, um, you know, clients going to see, and there's a number of mental health providers. So psychologists, you know, they have, um, they're doctorally, they're trained at the doctorate level and they're you know, pretty versed in research and kind of the medical etiology of mental health symptoms. Um, and then you've got 
clinical mental health counselors or master's level counselors who are much more focused on just the therapeutic aspect and understanding um, the, the relationship and the role of therapy. And then you've got social workers who also have kind of that, that background in resource and, and kind of case management, which I know is a very broad overview of mental health providers. But let's just say that you've got therapists will lump us all into one category and then the psychiatrist with the medical background. So more commonly, um, somebody would go to see a mental health provider like myself, and we're going to do, you know, the, the kind of the traditional one hour a week or one hour every other week of um, addressing the symptoms in more of that relational talk therapy kind of way. And then my clients, if medication is warranted, I might refer them out to a psychiatrist who's also going to take a pretty good comprehensive um, mental health and behavioral health background, but then just do kind of a, a, a check-in from time to time whenever you need that medication either reevaluated or your prescription refilled. Um, and even in some cases, there's, you know, just a regular primary care provider knows how to assess for the basic symptoms of depression and anxiety. I know psychiatrists can be really hard to get into, so sometimes I'll also just encourage a client to go see their PCP or their primary care provider, and that person can provide medication as well. Just pretty basic level though. So if someone is, is kind of at the beginning of this journey, you would suggest they go see a psychologist like you first and then pursue more of a medical direction if they need to. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I would recommend. Although, uh, you know, because some of the symptoms of mental health disorders do mask as physical symptoms. I know a lot of, I, I network a lot with medical doctors and they'll have a lot of patients come in thinking they have a physical medical condition. And after the doctor does an evaluation, they'll determine, you know, I think you might actually be dealing with some symptoms of depression or maybe anxiety. And then they might actually be the ones that refer out to a counselor mm -hmm or a psychologist, mental health provider. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. So physical health and fitness, uh, you know, it, everybody talks about it. Everybody wants it. We all attempt to be really good at it. Um, and then I feel like mental health gets completely forgotten. Um, and it's something that is, is just as important as physical health. So what are some ways that you can keep yourself mentally healthy and fit? Mm, that's so good. One of the biggest things that I see deficient in our society today is pausing and resting and, and taking a Sabbath. We fill our brain with so much information. We are constantly available. We are constantly accessible and we have constant access to information. And that has just caused, you know, an outbreak, if you will, of comparison of self-judgment and self-loathing of inadequacy. And so to me, as hard as it is, I mean, this really makes people uncomfortable to do it. Even myself, I know, because when I get in bed at night, you know, my tendency is to reach for my phone and look through, you know, Instagram or check some emails or send some texts to friends. But we really have to discipline ourselves to to kind of disengage from the world around us and, you know, meditate on scripture. I mean, one of my favorite books, um, uh, it's called Silence and Solitude, I believe, by Ruth Haley Barton. It's a great, um, it's a great discipline book on just spending time in silence with the Lord and just hearing from him and allowing him to remind us of who he created us to be and what our identity is. Because that's the other thing with, with all this information, it's a constant 
um, it's a constant influx and a constant confusion to our identity. So we're, we're always comparing ourselves to what we see around us versus knowing that our complete and utter worth lies in the fact that we are created in God's image. So I would say that's huge. You know, interestingly enough, there's a lot of research on the benefit of exercise on mental health. Mm. Because we see that exercise releases, you know, really happy euphoric uh, hormones. And and so exercising can actually um, have an adverse impact on reducing stress. So, you know, stress, the stress hormone cortisol is implicated in a whole host of mental um, health issues. And so when we're regularly taking care of our physical body, believe it or not, that's impacting our mental health as well. Well, I want to switch the conversation just a little bit. I know we could talk about, talk about this for a long, long time. And I have a feeling we're going to have a lot more episodes in the future about this, but yeah, I think it's really important to also talk about kind of the other side, I want to call it of mental illness. And that would be talking about the people who become the support system, um, for someone who is dealing with mental illness, you know, maybe it's just starting this journey. Um, you know, it, it, if you're, if you're fortunate enough to, it can be a team, thing, you know, you can, you can be the person going through it and then hopefully have somebody who is supporting you. Um, so what would your advice be for that support system? You know, how, how involved should you get when you are in that support position? You know, should you go to all the appointments? Should you know everything that's going on? Um, are there certain things that you say or do, or on the other end, maybe don't say, don't do, um, I'd love, I'd love kind of your, your advice and your input on that. Oh yeah, that's such a great question. You know, I always kind of go to the the generic response here of Job and the example of Job. I think his three friends, when Job was suffering, um, started off really well and provided a great example until they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you have Job who's mourning and grieving, and his three friends come and they sit with him and kind of practice the Hebrew um, or the Jewish rite of Shiva, which is mourning. And um, and so initially that presence. It was so powerful just to let Job be. And I think that is one of the most impactful, healthy things that we can do for our loved ones and our and our community when they're suffering from mental illness is to just sit with them and just to be available without judgment, without, um, you know, trying to tell them how they should be feeling or what they should be thinking. And that's where I think Job's friends then took a wrong turn, right? You've got one who told him, well, God's not going to give you anything that you can't handle. And he just sees you as so faithful. So that's why you're going through this. That doesn't help. You know, and another person saying, well, these things you did wrong or your family did wrong. And that's why you're going through this right now, you know, or we'll never be able to understand this. So, you know, just get over it. Those are all really damaging ways that they responded to Job and examples of things that I would really strongly encourage people not to say to their loved ones or to their community when they're going through mental illness. I mean, sometimes people really don't even know what triggered, you know, their depression or their anxiety. And, you know, they're already feeling the frustration and the discouragement over not being able to solve this problem. And so when other people come alongside and start saying, well, are you doing this or have you done this? It just feels more overwhelming, discouraging and invalidating. So I think being present, um, being willing to ask, what what do you need from me? What can I do for you instead of assuming what they need? Um, and if they say, I don't know, offer suggestions. Can I come over and do your laundry? Can I come over and make dinner for you and and sit with you and, and eat with you? Can I take your kids to school? Can I pick them up and take them to soccer practice? Um, 
you know, if you have somebody who's anxious, they've never been to counseling, can I go with you to that first appointment and just hang out in the waiting room? Or can I drive you, drop you off and come back and pick you up? Um, you know, so I think it's a combination. Being willing to ask, what do you need? And if they don't know, offering some suggestions. But don't assume you know what they need because everybody's experience, even if you've gone through your own bout of mental illness, everybody's journey through this is very unique and different. So we always <laughs> uh, go to our social media and we ask people for questions. And not shockingly at all, um, a lot of the questions this time were really focused around the church and, and its role in mental illness, um, its, its voice or lack thereof, um, in the conversation. And so before we get into those, I, I would love to just kind of get your thoughts on a question that I feel like probably just about everybody who's dealing with this will ask. And that is why, you know, why God am I going through this? Like, what is your plan in all of this? And so I guess I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, can God, have a plan in mental illness and and is it something that you can kind of use to view your situation in a little bit more of a positive light yeah absolutely um yes oh my gosh i have seen so many people who have struggled with mental illness um find meaning in that experience and you know i don't i don't even want to even pretend to think that I know why God allows things to happen in our lives and, and in the greater world around us. I know and believe in a God that has a plan and a purpose for everything. But when people are suffering, I, I don't know why. I, I know God is going is using them and God will not forsake or leave them. Um, but I would never say to somebody, oh, well, God is going to, you know, God is causing you to suffer for a plan or a purpose. Um, but on the other side, I also believe God is a God of redemption. And so he is going to redeem us in his timing and in his season. But I, I do believe he has gifted us with the ability to make meaning out of our experiences. And to me, that's one of the most impactful things I've seen in the work that I do, which I'm, I'm constantly humbled that God has drawn me into this field and has allowed me to sit with people in their most vulnerable and raw moments. And to just be known, I mean, that to me is the heart of what a, a, a therapist does, is to sit with a client and to just know them. Just to say, you can bring anything here. You can be questioning God. You can be mad at God. You can be mad at the world. You can be, you know, uh, upset with, with anybody or have gone through something horrific and embarrassing or shameful, whatever it is. I just want to know you without judgment, without expectation. And in that process, you know, my prayer is that, is that through God is using me to show whoever's sitting across from me in, in that office who he sees them as and who he's created them to be. And I think when somebody is, has that powerful experience of knowing they're known by God, right how they are in the midst of, 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 of you know, really destructive and, and painful emotions and, and experiences, um, that gives them the opportunity to then begin the healing process and to see that there is meaning in their life and that they are gifted with the ability to make meaning out of their experiences, to not diminish them, to not pretend that they don't exist, to actually do the hard work of wrestling through those, those emotions and those relationship brokenness, uh, those painful, even traumatic experiences, and to really see that God 
um, has gifted them with the opportunity to bring meaning into their lives. So a place where I feel like, you know, everyone should be able to go to, to get that kind of positive thinking and support from, um, would be the church. And there are some places that are doing really well, um, with being that support system, being that good conversation sounding board, I feel like for mental health, mental issues, you know, all that stuff. But I think overwhelmingly, um, you know, the church is still kind of, whether they know it or not, they're feeding this stigma monster (laughs) with everything. Um, so we got a bunch of different questions, but I really had two that I feel like stood out the most. Um, and I feel like would probably be the best to talk through. So the first one that we got was why is the church in, you know, in general, um, so silent on mental health and mental illness issues Mm -hmm. and therapy? Yeah. You know, um, this is just, this is just personal opinion, but I think they're overwhelmed. I think there, I think there's a lot of pastors who might be afraid to really wrestle with this topic because they don't have the resources, uh, to really know how to, how to address it if they sort of open the floodgates. Um, I think a lot of people, if they haven't encountered mental illness, whether personally or within their closest family circles, they don't, they just kind of cast it aside. I mean, when I look at the churches that are really doing it well, like the Saddlebacks, um, you know, Rick Warren went through a really tragic experience with the suicide of his son. And that's what instigated, you know, his development of this whole mental health ministry that their church provides. And so I think when people have a personal encounter, it completely changes their mindset. Um, yeah. And I, and then again, I think people don't fully understand. I think there's unfortunately, and I wouldn't have understood either until I went to schooling and really, really grasped, you know, the depth of the causation of mental illness. And so I think there's a lot of pastors out there that really don't understand the physical element of this disease and, and really do believe that it's an issue of faith only that if, you know, the person was praying more or spending more time in the word that they would feel better. And that just simply isn't true in a lot of cases. So then the the other question that we got, um, I think could apply to more than just the one illness that she mentions, I think with any of them, um, you know, this is something that again, the church tends to immediately, like you said, Oh, you know, you need to pray more. You need to pray about this. You need to be in the word more. Um, and obviously <laughs> that's probably not the best reaction. Um, so the second question that we've gotten was, do you believe that anxiety is a form of not trusting God? Mm, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. Um, and, and, you know, you look at the scriptures, it says, be anxious about nothing. It doesn't end there. We end it there, but it says, but <laughs> With prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, which I translate to, this is the Deb Gordon version, when you are anxious through prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, um, make your request known to God. So, um, you know, it, here's something interesting. I work, like I mentioned earlier, I work with a lot of clients who, who don't believe in God or who don't have a Christian background. And I will use that verse all the time. I don't explicitly tell them that verse, but I give them the exercise of thanksgiving because there is research that has shown that the act or the discipline of Thanksgiving, of journaling Thanksgiving or, um, you know, acts of gratitude actually changes the physical structure of our brain and reduces anxiety. So 
No, I believe we can trust fully in God and still have anxiety. I mean, again, what we're seeing with science, uh, most of the time, uh, what's implicated in depression and anxiety are these neurotransmitters called norepinephrine and serotonin. And just to give you a really quick science lesson, when we have these messages going on in our brain, there, there's chemicals being translate, transmitted across our neurotransmitters, and there's cells that are taking in this information. And science actually shows us that when we hear negative messages, cells that are receptive to negative messages replicate at the expense of cells that are receptive to positive messages. Mm. So we can actually be killing off cells that receive and take in positive messages and replacing them with cells that receive and take in negative messages. Now, the good news is our brain is regenerating cells on a regular basis, so this is not permanent. But absolutely, I mean, if our brain can change physically, then no, I, I think we can experience you know, debilitating anxiety and still have complete and utter hope and faith in God. And that is where I do believe he's gifted us with, you know, amazing physicians and therapists who believe wholeheartedly in the miraculous healing and the power of God and also embrace, you know, Christ-like characteristics in coming alongside and serving in the community and serving with their community to say, hey, let me help you. Let me, let me help you address these symptoms. So is there anything else, um, as we come to the end of this episode, is there anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with? Mm. I would say if you are a person that is struggling or even thinks that you might be struggling with mental illness, I know how hard it is to be vulnerable and share that with somebody. But probably one of the most difficult things that anybody struggling can can encounter is that isolation. So identify somebody in your life that you trust, that you're willing to share what you've been going through with. Um, and if that person doesn't respond in a way that makes you feel heard or safe, uh, consider reaching out to a professional. You know, Psychology Today is a great resource. Uh, it's a nationwide database of therapists you can actually um, filter through uh, with therapists that have a faith background and a Christian background. A lot of churches actually do have a referral for local mental health providers in their community. It's interesting. Um, there was a research study not too long ago, and, and the majority of churches identified having that list and resources available, but the majority of congregation members didn't actually know that that list existed. <laughs> wow. So. Yeah, consider reaching out to your church and just saying, hey, do you have a list of, you know, Christian counselors or counselors who are Christian in the area that I could reach out to that you have vetted or at least that you know have a faith background? If you'd like to experience Forward in a whole new way beyond this podcast, we invite you to check out the Forward Mentor Program. The upcoming summer session is now open for mentees to sign up and begin the process of getting matched with a mentor. This 10-week program connects Christian women in the workplace with mentors who share their beliefs, and mentor-mentee pairs are handpicked according to the mentee's goals and current hurdles they'd like help getting over. To sign up for the summer session of the Forward Mentor Program, visit www.forwardwomen.org mentor. The deadline to sign up for the summer session is Friday, May 3rd. If you'd like to join the mentor program later in the year, the deadline to apply for a fall session is Friday, September 6th.